Welcome, my name is Pastor Scotty Bockhaus, and we thank you for taking some time to listen to some audio recordings from the pulpit of the Riverview Baptist Church. Our desire is to show the Lord high, holy, and lifted up, as well as try to be a blessing to those through the Word of God. Please enjoy this message, and we pray that it will be a blessing to your life. And if you wouldn't mind to take your copy of the Word of God and turn with me to the Gospel record of Mark and chapter number 6. God's timing is always perfect. That God is always right. He's always good. And He's always on time. In fact, we saw that the last time that we had met when we were talking about uh, <coughs> Jairus and his family getting healed. We saw that the woman with the issue of blood being healed. We saw that God's timing is perfect. And that God has lined things up for His glory and His honor. You know, God is also good by lining up messages. I've always been amazed uh, through the turmoil and the things that have been going on that God has already led us before we even knew about everything to go into the gospel record of Mark. And I believe that this is a great gospel to be a help to people in the time, to be an encouragement to trace the lines of Jesus Christ. And then if we recognize that God's timing is perfect and we recognize that God is on the throne and that God has a plan, I also believe that tonight's message is for this time, for this exact hour, to be a help to someone. Now, I don't know exactly who this someone would be. It could be a lot of someones, but I believe that this will be a help tonight. And I want you to be attentive and paying attention with the anticipation of how God can speak to you. And so if you wouldn't mind to take your copy of the Word of God and turn with me to the Gospel record of Mark in chapter number 6. The Gospel record of Mark, chapter number 6, and notice with me in verse number 14. The Gospel record of Mark, chapter 6, and in verse number 14, the Word of God says this, And King Herod heard of him, for his name was spread abroad, and he said, that John the Baptist was risen from the dead, and therefore mighty works do show forth themselves in him. And others said, That is Elias. And others said, It is a prophet, or as one of the prophets. But when Herod heard thereof, he said, It is John, whom I beheaded. He is risen from the dead. For Herod himself had sent forth and laid a hold upon John and bound him in prison for Herodotus' sake, his brother Philip's wife, for he had married her. For John had said unto Herod, It is not lawful for thee to have thy brother's wife. Therefore Herodotus had a quarrel against him and would have killed him, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a just man and unholy, and observed him. And when he heard him, he did many things and heard him gladly. And when a convenient day was come, that Herod on his birthday had made a supper to his lords, high captains, and chief estates of Galilee. And when the daughter of the said Herodotus came in and danced and pleased Herod, and them that sat with him, the king said unto the damsel, Ask of me of whatever thou wilt, and I will give it thee. And he swore unto her, 
whatsoever thou shalt ask of me, I will give it to thee, even unto half my kingdom. And she went forth and asked her unto her mother, What shall I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in straightway with haste unto the king, and asked, saying, I will that give me by and by in a charger the head of John the Baptist. And the king was exceedingly sorry, yet for his oath's sake and for their sake which sat with him, he would not reject her. And immediately the king sent an executioner and commanded his head to be brought. And he went and beheaded him in the prison and brought the head in a charger and gave it to the damsel and the damsel gave it to her mother. And when the disciples heard of it, they came and took up his corpse and laid it in a tomb. And with the Lord's help, as we pay attention to John the Baptist and his response to Jesus Christ, we want to point out this and cover this idea here of Herod's guilty conscience. Herod's guilty conscience. With the Lord's help, let's go to him together. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you again for you being a wonderful God. And thank you for the great privilege of being here tonight to be able to open up your Bible. And Lord, we're thankful that your Bible is true, that your Bible is faithful. We're trusting that your Holy Spirit permeates someone's heart today. That your Holy Spirit would uh, send the light of the Holy Spirit to expose and to search the dark crevices of our hearts. That we can be as right with you as possible. For the purpose that we can be as clean with you as possible. For the purpose that we could be as close to you as possible. Again, I'm asking that you would help us to be honest within ourselves with this idea that we explore here of the idea of a guilty conscience. Thank you again for gathering us together and empower me in a way that I cannot do myself. Fill me with your precious spirit. I'm dependent upon you to get the work accomplished, not me. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. It's interesting to note that the word conscience is used 31 times in the Word of God. All of them are in the New Testament. In our conscience, we know there is a God. What is a conscience? Now, there's a difference between conviction and conscience. Conviction is something that God sends us for the purpose of changing behavior. Conscience is an innate sense of right and wrong that God programs to every man. So you don't have to be saved to have a guilty conscience. You don't have to be saved for your conscience to bother you. In fact, conscience is something that God has given every man to prove there is a God. Because of the fact that every man has a conscience, every man has an innate sense of right and wrong, this proves that there is a God. And God uses the idea of conscience to show us there's something wrong. Now, there's a, it is an amazing trend to see how many guilty consciences are around. And guilty conscience is something that can be identified. And it's something that needs to be dealt with. And it is something that is very severe. There are some people, just like bitterness, guilty conscience is something that will destroy its own container. It will eat people alive. It will destroy the very life that they have and turn them to a shell of what they could have become, a shell of themselves. Because of what conscience does to destroy us 
in the inside out. Now, God doesn't desire for anyone to be guilty. Guilt, uh, whenever your conscience is pricked, whenever your conscience is uh, provoked, it can be taken care of. But people with a guilty conscience have never dealt with the problem. They've never dealt with what is causing that guilt. They've never dealt with what has violated that conscience. And what they do normally, the normal response, is to put it off. And to put it off. And to ignore it. And to set it aside until it changes who they are. Do you know that the interesting thing about a guilty conscience is that it changes who a person is. It could change their personality. It could change how they interact with people. It changes even how they think. Someone with a guilty conscience doesn't even think the way that they used to. And their brain is actually reprogrammed in order to handle that guilt. And the reason why this is so important is because most people have a sense of guilt. There is a good number of people who have never dealt with what has pricked their conscience in the first place. And so with this important message, I don't want you to tune out. I want you to tune in because this is something that might be a help to you and you might not even know it yet. And so with that, let's examine this passage here. And the first thing I want to present to you is a guilty conscience. A guilty conscience. Notice with me, if you don't mind, in verse number 14. The gospel record of Mark, chapter number 6, and verse 14. And King Herod heard of him. Who's that him here? That's Jesus. Now notice what they, he had heard of Jesus. Up above he heard about the disciples uh, casting out devils, uh, anointing many uh, with oil that were sick and healing them. He had heard about what Jesus had done. He had heard about the maniac of Gadara. He had heard about the woman with the issue of blood. He had heard about the many things that Jesus had done through miracles. And as Herod had heard about this, he made a guess who he thought this was. Verse 14. And King Herod heard him, for his name was spread abroad, and he said, That John the Baptist was risen from the dead, and therefore mighty works do show themselves in him. John, uh, Herod, when he heard about Jesus, he said, I know who that is. That's John the Baptist. He's risen back. He's come to haunt me. He's coming back for me. Notice as others try to say, no, 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 it's not. It's someone else. Verse 15. And others said, it is Elias. And others said, it is a prophet or as one of the prophets. As people are talking about Jesus, as you can imagine, someone out healing people and casting out devils and doing these great works, people would talk about them. And others say, no, he's just an Old Testament prophet. God has brought back the prophets. This is someone to deliver good news. This is someone to deliver message. And John the Baptist said, no. Verse number 16. But when Herod heard thereof, he said, it is John whom I beheaded. He is risen from the dead. Now, we're going to see a little bit later that Herod knew that John the Baptist was a good man. He hurt, knew that John the Baptist was a just man and a holy man. We'll see that later. That's in verse number 20. Herod knew that. But Herod was kept seeing 
about John the Baptist. Now, before we touch this, maybe we could touch the Herod family. Now, the Herod that is being referred to is not the Herod of the Great that was ruling when Jesus was born. Herod the Great happened to be this person, Herod Antipas's father. Now, this is a horrible lineage, but Herod the Great was evil himself. You might remember that when he heard that Jesus Christ was born, he did not like the challenge to his throne. And so he ordered every two-year-old child and below to be killed to try to kill Jesus. It was called the slaughter of the innocents. This is the Herod the Great who knew that when he died, no one would mourn for his death. So what he did is he rounded up 70 of the most uh, popular and prominent people within the region and had them arrested as he was ready to die with orders that as soon as he died, that they were to be killed so that way the whole country would be in mourning when he died. That's a pretty evil guy. But then it continued to spread. Herod had several sons. He had Herod Archelaus, who was mentioned in the Bible that when Herod died, Herod Archelaus came to the throne. And Herod Archelaus was so evil that when Mary, uh, uh, Mary and Joseph, they were in Egypt and they heard that Herod died, they were preparing to go back. When they heard it was Herod Archelaus, they said, ah, never mind, we're going to Nazareth. We're not staying here. Herod Archelaus went so crazy that the Roman government had to depose him and they placed their own governors, which Pontius Pilate happened to be one of them, to replace him because they couldn't allow him to rule anymore. You also had Herod Antipas who beheaded uh, John the Baptist and later on he would be the Herod who would try Jesus at his crucifixion. You also had Herod Philip I and Herod Philip II, which made a very interesting team. We'll talk about them in just a moment. But this is a messed up family. It is a horrible family. And Herod Antipas is not a good seed. So much so that he killed and beheaded John the Baptist. And he has a very guilty conscience because of it. And we could see this, that even though he killed John the Baptist, he's positive this is John the Baptist come to haunt him. Can you imagine he's so haunted? It reminds me of the Shakespeare play of Macbeth, where Lady Macbeth, because she had committed so many murders and her conscience was bothering her, that she put on a good face when she was awake, but she began to develop sleepwalking and she would wake uh, walk in the middle of the night sleeping saying the blood the blood it won't wash out and she would be having day or nightmares while she was sleepwalking that she could not wash out all the blood from her hands it was just a physical sign of the guilty conscience that she had well here you have Herod Antipas who beheaded John the Baptist, and now he's hearing about this great preacher out in the wilderness. This great preacher who has power over demons. The power to heal. The power to cause the lame to walk again. The power to raise the dead. And he has that much power, and Herod Antipas is positive that John the Baptist is going to come back to get revenge because he killed him. And he's so bothered because of this. And this is just a sign of a guilty conscience. You know, there's many other physical and mental signs that someone has a guilty conscience. Don't tune me out here, but listen, listen to me now. Here are some signs of someone with a guilty conscience. 
These are a type of people that cannot look at you in the eyes. If someone avoids eye contact with you, it's usually a classic sign of guilt when they can't look at you in the eye. There, there's something to it, uh, especially with someone that they feel like they've, they've offended or let down. They have a hard time looking at them in the eye. They like to look away. They shift their weight. They look at anywhere else but right at you. Oftentimes, they will turn around and accuse you. This is called projection. That they feel so much guilt and they have to transfer it that they have to blame someone else. And they will suddenly accuse you. It's your fault. And they will say that the, the failings that they have and the reason why they can't succeed is your fault. That's a sign of a guilty conscience. It's called projection. Oftentimes, people who have uh, <clears throat> have a guilty conscience, they can't sleep property, properly. Something's on their mind. It may be work or family or something else that they feel guilty for, but they can not rest. Remember I spoke about Lady Macbeth who would have problems sleeping and she would even sleepwalk and that even though she was technically sleeping, she did not rest. These type of people can sleep and sleep and sleep sometimes and not rest because their body won't settle down. Sometimes they can't even sleep at all and they stay up at odd hours and then feel dragging and tired because they cannot rest and get the rest that God wants them to have because their conscience won't let them when the lights are off and all the noise is turned off and they're left all alone with that conscience. These people sometimes are known for avoiding you. If they have an offense with you, they'll avoid you. By the way, the biggest person they avoid is God. Amen. They feel like God is far away and they're fine with that. Let me tell you, not a single Christian should ever be satisfied with God being far away. That is a sign that something is bad, wrong. It is something awful. If a Christian does not have any desire to be close with God, let me tell you, that is a classic sign of a conscience that is bothering them. A guilty conscience. What keeps people from being close to God? Sin. Sin keeps us close from being with God. And it's not on God's part, it's on our part. Because we could be forgiven of it. But when someone cannot get close to God, when a Christian who is born again, saved by the blood, has no desire to be close with God, it is because they have a conscience and they are avoiding God. But it happens with people. If they feel like they've let you down or they've done something against you, they will avoid you because when they're next to you, that conscience is blaring to them and they're so dissettled. They don't want to spend time with you because it actually hurts them in the inside because of that. It's a sign of a guilty conscience. A lot of times people who have a guilty conscience, they lose their appetite they have a hard time eating. And this is caused because of stress and anxiety. That it's something they can't eat. It, it, there's something in their body that won't let them eat. You, when you see someone like that, you have to ask, your question, ask the question, why are they feeding like this? Why are they eating like this? They're not taking the care of themselves properly with eating. They have a hard time. It's a sign of a guilty conscience. 
Sometimes they'll make effort for small talk uh, with someone that they violated that they have to be close to. And it's usually because they're compensating for lying to you. And it's one of the things you can notice right away that they can't talk big things, but they try to make an effort. They're trying to uh, hide the fact that they're uncomfortable around. And so they say little things that don't matter, but they will not talk about anything deeper. They just cannot bring themselves to do it. They often become, those with a guilty conscience become very emotional. They can be steady, but all of a sudden something sets them off. They become upset and emotional when confronted. By the way, that is a good sign because at least they're still feeling convicted and guilty about it. And they haven't died. They haven't seared that conscience. But if, they, if something accuses them, even if it's something small, all of a sudden they become emotional and defensive. Maybe they'll become weepy. and It could be something small. Hey, uh, did you do the dishes? Why? I'm over-exaggerating, but not by much. It could become they super angry, super depressed, super weepy, that they are not emotional stable, but you just watch something set them off. Something else about them is that they're anxious. Guilt naturally causes anxiety. And so they start acting anxious around you. They're uncomfortable. They can't sit. You know, there is a type of silence that is good, healthy silence. When there's nothing wrong between two people, they don't have to talk. But people who are guilty, they cannot stand the silence. And so they shift around. They become very uncomfortable. They don't want to be there. They cannot stand the silence. They don't want to talk. The more that you're around them, the more they are. And they're too terrified to share. It, they, they, they're not honest. And we'll talk more about that towards the end. But that's one of the problems is that they're not honest. Which brings me to another thing. They lie. To go along with the anxiety, lying becomes a natural response. They don't even think about the lie. It just comes out because they're trying to cover it up. They don't want to deal with it. So they lie and then they lie. And what's worse is that you have to start keeping up to with lies you told. And it's easy. You start to see the lies and they start coming out. And it looks like there's no effort. It just Bills out no problem. It's the lack of honesty that got them in the problem in the first place. And because they refuse to be honest, it compounds more with more lies. Of course, there's other signs and different things you could point out with, but this is sufficient. It's enough that you could tell in yourself if these things hit. You could tell in others that you're dealing with when they're starting to act squirrely, when they're acting different, their, their anxiety's up, they're lying more, they become super emotional, they're not sleeping well. These type of things all point to a guilty conscience, something in their life that they have not dealt with. And it is now coming out physically. Remember, we're made up of three parts. We're made up of spirit, we're made up of soul, and we're made up of body. Spirit, soul, and body. And whenever there's something wrong with one part, it will show up and manifest 
in the other parts. That means that if there's something physically wrong with someone, it could show up in their mental health or their spiritual health. If there's something wrong mentally, it could affect their physical health and it could affect their spiritual health. If there's something wrong spiritually, which is a guilty conscience, it can show up in the way that they think and it could show up physically. And it needs to be dealt with. And it can be dealt with. Now, I'm not trying to be mean. We are trying to be like physicians, identify the symptoms so we can identify the problem. And to give you the answer, it can be cured. You don't have to live this way. You don't have to go on this way. You don't have to live like this. Isn't that good news? There are many people I know who have a guilty conscience who would love to get rid of it. Who would love to be free of it. To, be, to get to the place where they can sleep again. Where they can have normal relationships again. Where they can be close to God again. Let me tell you, you take care of that conscience. I'll tell you how in here in a bit. As we come back to Mark chapter 6, we identify first of all, here's someone with a guilty conscience. Here is someone with a conscience that is bothering him and it is being manifested with how he's seeing. It's John the Baptist. I know it's him. He's coming back for me. I know it's him. Which shows us something else. A guilty charge. A guilty charge. Now what happens is it goes back in time and gives us a flashback. Gives us a, how, the backstory. Why is John the Baptist dead? I mean the last time we saw him he was preaching. The last time we saw him he was uh, baptizing Jesus. What happened to John the Baptist? What happened from that time to here? What went on? Well here's the backstory. We see a guilty charge. Notice with me in verse 17. For Herod himself had sent forth and laid a hold on John and bound him in prison. Why? For Herodotus' sake, his brother Philip's wife, for he had married her. Now remember that I told you that they came from a messed up family. His father was Herod the Great. His brother was Herod uh, Archelaus, who had already been deposed. He also had bro a brother, Herod Philip I, and Herod Philip II. But he also had a sister. His sister's name was Herodotus. And so you don't have a family tree here. You have a family web. And so what happened is Herod Antipas's sister, Herodotus, married his brother, Philip. Now Herod and, or Herodotus had great drive and great ambition. She wanted to be the emperor's wife, the Roman emperor's wife. And so they had dealings with the Roman court. And so she tried to use her influence and sway to try to get Philip to do something and to try to get up his station. And when it was clear that Herod Philip was not going to amount to anything, she divorced him and married her other brother and said, he's going some places. So here you are, you have a brother who married his sister and then got divorced and the sister married another brother. Sound complicated? It is. And you know what the good old fashioned uh, preacher John the Baptist did? He stuck his bony finger in his face and said, Thou shall not have thy brother's wife. Notice verse 18. For John had said unto Herod, It is not lawful for thee to have thy brother's wife. No, you should not do There's all kinds of things wrong with this. Well, Herodotus did not like the preacher getting in her business. 
She did not like the preacher to point out that their lifestyle was bad. So she's definitely not going to change the lifestyle. So here is the old Bible uh, recipe that whenever someone hears a message they don't like, blame the preacher. And so she wasn't going to change her lifestyle. So she blamed the preacher. Notice what happened in verse 19. Therefore Herodotus had a quarrel against him. You can imagine, she held a grudge. I hate that preacher. I hate that preacher. I want to destroy the preacher. For, for Herodotus had a quarrel with him and would have had him killed, but she could not. All right, she wanted him dead, but the one thing that was keeping him alive was her new husband brother, Herod Antipas. Why wouldn't he kill him? Verse 20, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a just man and a holy Man, it's what's referred to. Herod arrest, knew that John the Baptist was a just man. He didn't do anything wrong. He was a righteous man. And he was a holy man. He was dedicated to God. Herod said, I'm not touching him. No, not going to happen. I mean, I fear God. I've, this guy, if I mess with him, God's going to be after me. And he was going to be after him. And observed him when he heard him. He did many things and heard him gladly. Herod Antipas liked to listen to John the Baptist. Man, this guy can preach. He wasn't going to obey anything John the Baptist said. But man, I'm not touching him. This is clearly a man from God. Oh, but something happened. Something happened. He had him arrested to try to appease the wife. But she wanted him dead. So... Herod compromised, put John in, preach, in prison, and was hoping that would satisfy the wife so she wouldn't keep nagging him about it. But her plans continued on. We started off with a guilty conscience. Then we flashed back and saw a guilty charge that John the Baptist put his bony finger and said, it is not lawful to have her as your wife. And Herodotus did not like that. So the compromise was reached. He's put in prison. But then we see the guilty crime. The guilty crime. What was it that set off his guilty conscience? Notice with me in verse 21. And when a convenient day was come, that Herod on his birthday made a supper to his lords, high captains, and chief estates in Galilee. So Herod threw a big party. We're having a birthday party to me. And they had everybody who was a who's who there. All the chief captains, the chief guards, all the aristocrats. Everyone was there. And when the daughter of the said Herodotus, so this is not his daughter, it's his stepdaughter that comes in and she begins to dance and not appropriately. And it pleased Herod and then that sat with him. And the king said to the damsel, ask me whatsoever will and I'll give it to you. So she danced and pleased the crowd. He said, fine, whatever you want, you tell me what you want. She said, time out, I'll be right back. So verse 21, she went forth and, at, and said to her mother, what shall I ask? All right, mom, what do you want me to do? We could tell who was in charge. It was mama. Mom said, I want the head of John the Baptist. So she comes out, verse 25, and straightway with haste to the king, saying, I will that give me by and by in a charger the head of John the Baptist. So she comes back and the king says, what can I do for you? I want the head of John the Baptist. Well... Now he's in a pickle. He doesn't want to put John the Baptist to death, but notice what happens on the other side. Verse 26, And the king was exceedingly sorry, yet for his own sake and for their sakes which sat with him, 
he would not reject him. He gave his word. Whatever you ask, I'll give to you. And when she asked, and it was something within his power to give, everyone's staring at him. He has to keep his word. Otherwise, everyone else will think he will not keep his word to them. He got stuck. So... He sent the executioner to go and behead John the Baptist. Brought his head in a charger. Brought it to the damsel. The damsel brought it to mom and said, Mom, looky what I did. And the disciples of John took his body and buried it in a tomb. But after this, Herod's conscience kept bothering him. Kept affecting him. Now we cover this, but I haven't given you a solution yet. How do we take care of a guilty conscience? Can we have a conscience that is void of offense? Well, notice with me in the book of Acts chapter 28. And we're going to look and see what the Bible has to say. But let's look first of all in the testimony of the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul is on trial. And as he's standing, <coughs> once again, notice if you don't mind, as he now uh, gives his own testimony concerning this. Notice with me in Acts chapter 24 and notice with me in verse 26 or verse 16. Uh, Acts 24 and verse 16. And herein I do exercise myself to have always a conscience void of offense toward God and toward men. Paul says I exercise, I work at it to have a conscience that's void of offense Towards God first of all. But also towards men. He says I work at it. I exercise. And by the way to have a clean conscience does take work. There's something you have to do. You don't have a clean conscience just by sleeping it off. You don't wake up one day and go woohoo I'm cured. There is a purposeful intentional action that you must do. In order to have a clean conscience. Now first of all before I cover anything else, you first of all have to be saved. You have to know for sure that your sins are forgiven, that Jesus Christ has paid your price. That's where you got to start with. If you are not saved, you are not forgiven of your sins, you don't know for sure that you're going to heaven, that's where you need to start. You need to go to Jesus Christ, admit to him that you're a sinner, and because of your sin that you've offended a holy righteous God, and that Jesus is your only hope, and that you personally accept him to be your savior. But I'm speaking to those now who are Christians. We're on a Wednesday night message. Those who are listening are usually born again. They've accepted Christ as their Savior. So I'm talking to you, dear friend. You already know for sure that your sins are forgiven. How can you have a conscience void of offense towards God and towards man? How is it that you can have a clean conscience, not a guilty conscience? So if you don't mind, I'd like to tell you three things from the word of God of how to keep a clean conscience. Notice with me in the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 4. The book of 2 Corinthians chapter number 4, and we come to our first thing we're covering here. How is it that I can have a conscience void of offense between God and toward men? Well, notice with me, starting at 2 Corinthians chapter 4, notice with me in verse number 2. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 2. But have renounced the hidden things of dishonesty, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but manifest 
attestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. In verse number two, it's all dealing with how we handle the word of God. Do we handle the word of God deceitfully? Do we handle the word of God in craftiness? Do we handle the word of God in dishonesty? And so maybe we could sum this down to something easy to, to put down. We have to stay correct in the word of God. You have to stay correct in the word of God. What do I mean by this? Well, if you're not in the Bible you are not going to have a conscience correct with God. You have to be in the Bible. The greatest thing you could do on a daily basis is to be in the word of God for yourself. If this is how God shows us, you know what the Bible is? It's a mirror. And it's not a funhouse mirror where you get to go to this one and you're skinny and then this one you're fat and this one you're loppy looking and you go back to the one where you look skinny and say, I want to stay here. The Bible is a mirror in that it shows you all of your blemishes. It shows you who you really are, not who you think you are. That's why a lot of people don't like the Bible. Because they do not like the reflection they see back. Someone who cannot spend time in the Bible, who will not read the Bible, is someone who doesn't like the reflection, is someone with a guilty conscience. You need the word of God. And you have to be honest with the word of God. Not to twist it away. Not to explain it away. So that way you feel better. So you don't have to change. But you have to accept what the Bible says. And listen to it. Obey it. Look at it. You have to be in the word of God. You have to have it if you're going to stay close to God. To have a conscience void of offense towards God and toward men. Is that you have to stay right in the word of God. You have to allow the Bible to change us. And not us change the Bible. You have to see what it says. And strive to obey it. And to do it. In order to have a conscience that's void of offense. Do not have a guilty conscience. You have you as a Christian, you have to start with the word of God. Someone who's been away from the word of God for a while, let me tell you there's a reason why you've been away from the Bible. And it's because you don't like what it says. But that's where you need to start. The Bible will help you. The Bible will show you who you are. And it's only after you have a realistic view of who you are can you fix it. You have to stay right. In the word of God. There's a second thing we have to do. If we're going to have a conscience void of offense. Towards God and towards men. Turn with me to the book of Hebrews. Chapter number 9. The book of Hebrews in chapter number 9. The book of Hebrews chapter 9. And let's see something else. That the Bible says. About making sure that we have a conscience void of offense. Having a good conscience. Notice with me in the book of Hebrews chapter number 9. Hebrews chapter 9 and notice with me in verse 14. Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 14. How much more shall the blood of Christ. Who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God. Purge your conscience from dead works. To serve the living God. You know what we do have to do is recognize the forgiveness of God in the times that we failed. Recognize the forgiveness of God in the times we failed. Do you know that sometimes we are harder on ourselves than God is? 
Sometimes it's easier to get forgiveness from God than it is to forgive ourselves. If you have something in your past before you came to know Jesus Christ, your Savior, you need to recognize that's washed in the blood. That's gone. It's paid for. Jesus has washed it away. It is gone. If you've sinned after you saved, you recognize that we have 1 John 1, 9. If you confess your sin, he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Once you confess that sin as a Christian, it's washed away. God will no longer bring it up ever again. It's cast as far as the east is from the west. God has forgotten it. It's God. And God will not keep bringing up your past. You know who keeps bringing up your past? Satan. Someone said this, whenever Satan reminds you of your past, you remind him of his future. But God is taking care of your past. You need to let it go and recognize God has forgiven you. Now we're dealing with those who have confessed their sin. Once you've confessed your sin and you've done everything to get right with God, that God will not bring it up ever again. He has already forgiven you. Forgive yourself and let it go. So we start off, how do we have a conscience void of offense? Stay right with the Bible. You allow the Bible to correct you. You don't correct the Bible. You need to be in the Bible and spend time with it. Second of all, how do I keep a conscience void of offense? You need to be able to recognize the forgiveness of God. You know, if someone doesn't recognize they're forgiven and they still feel that weight, they're not going to move forward in their Christian life. They're going to stay where they are because they cannot move past their past. Their past anchors them down and they will not move forward. Instead, they get further away because they feel like they're not worthy. Let me tell you, if you feel like you cannot serve God, if you feel like you're not worthy to serve God, guess what? You're right. But when you recognize that I'm a nobody, but God has forgiven me and washed me clean and he loves me and he wants to use me, then you realize God does want to use me and I can be used. Not because of who I am, but because of who he is. But when people are weighted down with their past, they cannot advance forward in their Christian life. It's a tactic of Satan and it needs to be dealt with. Recognize that God has given you forgiveness and offered you forgiveness. But there's a third thing I'd like to show you and something that's going to be a great help. How can I have a conscience void of offense towards God and towards man? Notice with me in the book of Hebrews chapter 13. The book of Hebrews chapter 13, and notice with me in verse number 18. Such simplicity. Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews 13, and notice with me in verse number 18. Hebrews 13 and verse 18, the Bible says this. Pray for us, for we trust we have a good conscience in all things, willing to live honestly. Honestly. That is the key word, to live an honest life. Remember when I said before, the signs of a guilty conscience, part of it is lying. Lying. <laughs> if you could forgive the personal illustration, but the biggest grievance, the biggest crime you could do in my household is to lie. And we teach our kids this, that as long as they're honest with us, it doesn't matter how much trouble you get into, as long as you're honest with us, we can help you. Amen. We can help you. 
You know, people can get help if they would just be honest. But if they won't be honest, if they won't be open, it's the idea that what's, is there anything going on? Is there anything bothering you? No. When there clearly is, they're not being honest. And as long as they're not being honest, they cannot get help. You know how simple it is? Just to be honest, they said, but I don't want to let God know what I did wrong. No, no, no. The word confession doesn't mean to tell on yourself. The word confession means to agree with God with what he already knows. God already knows. You just have to be willing to say, I messed up. When we have that type of attitude that we're willing to say, I messed up. We have a conscience void of offense towards God and man. We all mess up. There's something about our human nature that we don't like to admit that we messed up. So we cover it up. We tell a lie to cover up our mess up. And what happens that doesn't get anything solved? If I dropped the jar and it broke, I dropped the jar. I'm sorry. Most people are willing to forgive you. They will not kill you because you dropped a jar. But when it comes to nobody did it and the invisible man did it. Well, that's a problem because we know someone's lying. And it builds up to something. But even to the past that, there are people that are struggling and they won't get help. They refuse to get help because they refuse to be honest. It doesn't matter how much trouble you're in. There's enough people that love you that if you would just be honest, they would help you no matter what it is is no matter what it is they said but you don't know how bad of a sin it is i may not but i'm willing to help you your parents your friends your husband your wife if you would just be honest with them and there's one thing with being caught when someone's caught in sin it takes a blow and it's hard to deal with but if someone says i'm struggling with this and i've been afraid to admit this to you but I have this problem. I have this sin. More people who love you when they hear that are willing to help you. I guarantee it. Nobody has to stay in that state. You don't have to deal with it by yourself. That's why you have a pastor. That's why you have parents. That's why you have loved ones. That's why you have spouses. You have people around you who love you. Most of all, you have a God in heaven. And most people have the problem with this. They won't even be honest with God. They don't even want to tell God that they're struggling. He knows you're struggling and you don't have to. As long as you're honest with God, he'll help you with no matter what it is. No matter how awful it is. No matter how debauched it is. God is willing to help you. There's not a single sin that God will not help you with. If you would just be honest with him. And I dare say most people who love you, it doesn't matter how awful your sin is. If you would just be honest with him, with those people who love you, they will help you no matter what. But you have to live honestly. There's something about iniquity and lying that go hand in hand. That when sin happens, it's usually followed by lying. And it doesn't make it better, it makes it worse. You try to bury it, you try to cover it up, and your conscience screams at you. And it bothers you. And it will not let you rest. 
And you may think that you cover it up. You may think that you get to the place where you've got it licked. But all you need is some quiet time all by yourself. And it comes back. And it haunts you. And let me tell you, friend, this is a message of hope. This is not a message of condemnation. This is a message of hope. You can get help. Just reach out. Call me, text me, talk to God, talk to a friend, do something. But don't live like this. You don't have to be miserable. You can have a conscience void of offense towards God and towards man. If you would just be honest. Thank you for listening to this audio message. This is Pastor Scotty Bockhaus, and I encourage you to take this information that you just received and make a specific decision to follow after the Lord. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, let me beg you to take the time to receive Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. If you are saved, I encourage you to make a decision in your life to help you get closer with the Lord. If there's anything specific we can do to be a blessing or to pray for you, we encourage you. Look us up on the internet at riverviewbc.com. Once again, that's riverviewbc.com. Or if you would prefer to call us, you can give us a call at area code 920 Five three zero six three zero eight. Once again, that number is nine two zero five three zero six three zero eight. If there's anything we can do to be a blessing or an encouragement to you, please let us know. We would love to make ourselves available. Thank you.